Welcome to the Spotlight series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. Welcome to Surviving Society Spotlight season. My name is Dr. Nika Denny and I am the guest host of today's episode. I currently teach African-American history at Washington and Lee University, and my research focuses on Black women's intellectual history, particularly during the 19th century. My guest today is Dr. Jalicia Jolly. Thanks for joining me, Jalicia. Uh, would you mind telling listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Hi. Yes, Dr. Nika Denny. My name is Jalicia Jolly, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow and incoming assistant professor in American Studies and Black Studies at Amherst College in Amherst, Massachusetts. And my research and writing and teaching focuses on the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and Black women's health and activism, HIV AIDS, transnational feminist organizing, and reproductive justice in the African diaspora. And I'm currently working on my first book manuscript, Ill Erotics, Black Caribbean Women and Self-Making in the Time of AIDS, which is an ethnographic and oral historical study of the erotic lives and grassroots mobilization of young Black Jamaican women living and loving with HIV AIDS in this unique era. Ooh, that sounds exciting. Can you repeat that title for me one more time? That that sounded like you got some sprinkle on it. <laughs> I like that, sprinkles. Ill Erotics, Black Caribbean Woman and Self-Making in the Time of HIV AIDS. So how are you going about doing your research for that project? All research is at a halt right now. Um, but in general, I use ethnography and oral history, and I sort of trace women's experiences and document their lives across various cultural arenas, public health institutions, medical and clinics, their homes, their communities, and then also local nonprofit HIV AIDS organizations, which provides the brunt of HIV AIDS care in the context that I'm working in. And so Ethnography is a huge part of that. And so that looks like engaging with women in these spaces, but also um, having informal interactions with them and just really um, getting a feel of the daily texture of their lives in different ways and different spaces and um, interactions with their children, interactions with their partners, interactions with each other's through their peer support groups and networks and interactions with state agents as well as medical practitioners. Much of it is looking at these intimate dynamics of HIV AIDS as well as just their lives in general. That's really awesome. I mean, my work, you know, doing work on the 19th century, that means that I don't get to talk to real people very much for the purposes of my research. I'm mostly, um, poking around in archives and reading old sources like newspapers and things <laughs> like that. So I, I always love hearing about what people are still doing within the field of Black studies, which is so expansive, even though it's not necessarily aligned with the actual work that I'm doing. Um, so I've got two different book projects that I'm working on right now. One has naturally slowed down a little bit um, because of COVID-19 and not being able to physically travel to some of the archives that I would like to use. First book project that I'm working on is titled Redefining Radicalism, The Rise of Black mm -hmm. Feminism and the Politics of Respectability in the 19th Century. Yes. Uh, and this is a project, thank you. <laughs> um, this is a project that's primarily thinking about what Black radicalism looks like when we focus on the 19th century instead of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, it's also thinking about what Black radicalism looks like when it's practiced by people who we don't immediately 
think of as radicals, right? So when we're, when we're thinking about 19th century Black women, a lot of people immediately jump to the politics of respectability, which Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham writes about in her 1993 book, Righteous Discontent. And that being said, I think that in many ways, because 19th century Black women were operating within social and political spheres that were restricted by patriarchy in different ways, that were restricted by racism in different ways, that they don't necessarily access radicalism in some of the ways we might think of it as. But what I'm finding by focusing on six women for this project, uh, Mariah Stewart, Sojourner Truth, Marianne Shadkari, Frances Harper, Anna Julia Cooper, and Ida B. Wells, is that Black women navigate the politics of respectability in order to articulate their radicalism. It's not something that makes their radicalism, but rather is one of the vehicles that they use in order to arrive there. So that's the first book project that I'm working on. And the second one is something that I'm really excited about because that hasn't quite slowed down despite the pandemic. And this is a book project tentatively titled, We Should Do More and Talk Less. Mary Ann Shadkari's Essential Writings. Wow. Source collection of work by Mary Ann Shadkari, who was a lot of different firsts. She was the first Black woman newspaper editor in North America, the first woman editor in Canada, the first Black woman to attend law school in the United States. Uh, so she does a lot of really, really great work with her newspaper, The Provincial Freeman. People frequently think of her strictly as an editor, strictly as a journalist, strictly as an activist, without necessarily accounting for how within those spaces she was often theorizing. She was organizing, she was a teacher, but she was also theorizing. And so this is a project that is collecting a lot of her different writings spanning basically the 1840s to the 1880s in order to highlight the ways that she's talking about labor, emigration, women's rights, and racial uplift more broadly. That's wonderful. First off, I love those titles. And I just love the focus on this expansive sphere of Black women's activism and and politics. And Do More Talk Less sounds wonderfully engaging and also redefining radicalism. So that's that's really wonderful to see that that being done in this time, especially in this very specific and particular political and ethical moment that we find ourselves in locally and globally. And I think one of the things that I really enjoy about your work and I see overlaps with mine is thinking about the expansive understandings of Black politics that is rooted in the experiences, the labor, and the activism of everyday Black women, right? Which really also is shifting attention from this male-centric emphasis on highly public leadership roles and towards an an array of political activity. So it's really wonderful to kind of hear the different vantage points and approaches that you're taking to your work. And and that together is where we're using to really make up Black Studies, Africana Studies in 2020. Yes. So that's really exciting. And it's something that I center in my first project and I'm also centering in my second project. The title of that project is Black Women Surviving a Plague the transnational politics of reproductive injustice and medical violence in the African diaspora. And I'm really looking, taking a transnational Black feminist lens to really look at the Caribbean, the U.S., and South Africa, Black women's experiences leading reproductive justice and HIV AIDS movements there. And I'm looking at these sites of violence that offer an occasion for us to think about um, how Black women 
um, not just live with, but really engage and respond to and critique um, medical violence, such as sterilization or in access to HIV AIDS care, quality care, and also medical experimentation. I came across a second project um, actually two years ago as I was wrapping up my research in Jamaica. And I started talking to women who, HIV positive, Black Jamaican women who had experienced sterilization and those who um, had interactions with, with medical practitioners and state agents who kind of encourage sterilization. One of the things that came up for me in that sense was just kind of what the understandings around who is worthy of being a child rearing and bearing woman and what that meant for what this what sort of class oppression, racism, sexism, institutional discrimination together um, means for black women as they try to claim the right to mother, as well as the right to access other reproductive health services and means. And along that time, I came across the Mbokoto trials where 2,600 HIV negative women from the ages of 18 to 35 participated in a four-year study to test the efficacy of an HIV vaccine. Actually, that was developed in a hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. And I thought this was, it was interesting to see the connections between medical experimentation happening from Boston to South Africa but then also the sterilization experiences happening among women in the Caribbean. And as we know, forced, coerced um, sterilization, but also reproductive violence in general is something that the United States has long shared against women of color, particularly thinking about uh, Mexican women in California in the mid-1900s, mm-hmm. or if we can think about Black women in Mississippi, you can think about the Ralph sisters, and of uh, various sort of examples of state-sponsored sterilization, but then also institutionally cursed forms of reproductive violence. So I really wanted to think about these connections throughout the diaspora and the ways in which women have responded by um, developing political networks, by developing their own mentorship care structures, and by really resisting using these international and grassroots networks to um, claim a political voice in a vibrant and also really strong way. And so we know that Afro-diasporic women have been at the very heart of struggles against reproductive coercion, HIV, AIDS, and other intersectional forms of um, vulnerability and violence. They remain excluded in research and policy and official discourses and health funding agendas. And they're often framed as medical objects as, as opposed to political actors in their own right. And so I really wanted to sort of take um, a Black feminist and transnational frame to really think about how we can center Black women's experiences in this process. What's striking to me about your project as well Um, is how relevant it is to things that are happening today and how universal it is, right? So I'm just thinking as well about how sometime around when, probably September 2020, when it was announced that immigrants who were being detained at the southern border of the United States were facing forced hysterectomies for absolutely no reason other than to commit genocide of Latin American women who were entering from the southern border, right? Like, I'm also thinking as well, when you mentioned this experimentation that was happening, I'm thinking as well of the Tuskegee experiments that took place um, from 1932 to 1972, right? Mm -hmm. Like where there were around 600, I believe, Black men who were not treated for syphilis or deliberately Mm -hmm. infected with syphilis, even though 
we had already known what the cure was, even though there was already treatment for it, right? And so this sort of experimentation on Black people, the disposability of women's of color's bodies and things like that um, are really highlighting to me the need for Black studies and for Black women's studies, which I think is something that is uniting the work that we're doing, even though we're looking at two completely different regions during two completely different time periods. Um, I think that what your project and its connections show is really the sort of um, broad applicability of Black studies as a field. Um, And so I was also wondering if you can speak a little bit about how you understand the field of Black studies and what Black studies means to you. Thank you for further elevating those connections as there's something that we're thinking through, but also living through um, as we're living through this pandemic, as we're faced with government inaction and racist neglect, and as we're contending with the crushing weight of racialized violence. We're learning in this moment that, you know, health is not merely the absence of illness and actually pandemics are teaching us which lives and which deaths matter. Black studies and the lens, the critical and intersectional and interdisciplinary lens it offers to study Black life in this particular moment, I think is is something that's really powerful. And for me, I agree with you absolutely when you mentioned the applicability of Black studies as a field. And I think about this often when I think about how so much of Black studies has meant integrating the lived experiences of Black people throughout the diaspora, right? So in Africa, in the Americas, you know, elsewhere in the world, integrating those lived experiences, meaning our history, our culture, our art, our social relationships, our political, religious, economic experiences, the daily texture of our lives, um, how it feels as to be an embodied subject of our humanity. Integrating that with the sort of critical theories and ideologies and perspectives that, that yield complex, nuanced, and more complete understandings of what it's like to live while Black, learn while Black, resist while Black in these changing times, but also throughout history in general. And I think so for me, one of the things that Black Studies means is using you know, variety, traditional and non-traditional methods to pursue knowledge that assumes that the peoples and cultures of Africa and the African diaspora are central to our understanding of the world more accurately and our understanding to modernism and civilization and citizenship and questions around bodies and autonomy and capital and capitalism and racial capitalism, etc. When I think of Black studies, I think of innovation. I think of not just survival, but also thriving. I think about integrating lived experiences and theory. And I think about, as you mentioned, applicability, what is its application, particularly in contexts and in moments where Black life is not reckoned with in meaningful ways. And so entering into a context, into a field where that foundation is not taken for granted, but is foregrounded as central to knowledge production and central to how we teach, learn, create knowledge and live. It is what Black Studies is for me, and it's what it's so centrally rooted and important. So I'd love to hear also about what Black Studies means to you and and your work, um, especially because so many of the inquiries and the investments that you articulated in the beginning of our session is fundamentally at the center of Black studies. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciate about how you were framing Black studies just now is that I think that you really bring to the fore one of the key elements of Black studies, which is that it foregrounds Black humanity and actual Black people, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that there's a way that some disciplines might do research about Black people 
without actually acknowledging the full personhood, right? Without acknowledging that Black people are living, thinking, breathing humans. I think that there are many ways in which some folks might do research on Black people that frame us as objects of study rather than subjects who might be able to offer a nuanced understanding of the world on our own, right? And so I think that this element of recognizing Black humanity uh, and placing that at the center is really key to the ways that I understand Black studies. Uh, So when I'm teaching Africana studies courses, right, like I use Black studies and Africana studies somewhat interchangeably. Yes. Uh, When I'm teaching Africana studies courses, I always begin by telling my students that Africana studies is three things, right? Like it is transnational, it is interdisciplinary, and it is intersectional. Uh, And I think that these three elements are at the root of how I understand the field because out of necessity, Black studies cannot only mean that we're looking at Black men, right? Like, it means that we also need to look at Black women. Mm-hmm. We also need to look at Black queer people. We also need to look at trans Black people, right? And so foregrounding intersectionality is really important to me to understanding how Black studies is able to be an interpretive field, not only for the experiences of cisgender heterosexual Black men, um, but for as many Black experiences as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same vein of wanting Black studies to reflect as many Black experiences as possible, it's also important to me for Black studies to be transnational, right? Mm-hmm. Like, in order to recognize how Black people have existed all throughout the world, we can't only focus on the United States, right? Mm-hmm. I think that there's this sort of tendency to treat African American experiences as unique in some ways when we're thinking about slavery, for example, when slavery was a worldwide phenomenon, right? And so this is not to say that there are not regional differences that emerge. This is not to say that different areas are not unique, but rather that white supremacy is a global system that has produced an African diaspora as a result of slavery Mm -hmm. or as a result of colonialism or as a result of capitalism. And so for me, it's important to look at Black studies from a transnational viewpoint in order to recognize the ways that Black people have shared experiences, Black people have shared histories, uh, regardless of the specific particularities that might emerge in how we move through the world or that might emerge in the belief systems coming out of different regions. With that final point about interdisciplinarity, uh, I think that that's really one of the keystones of Black studies that we're able to more fully understand Black people's histories, Black people's cultural productions, when we're able to draw on a blend of different disciplines rather than relying on a single one. I think that what's important for Black studies is that Black studies as a field is not driven by a method. It is driven by a question, right? And that's not to say that Black studies has no method, because we most certainly do, Mm -hmm. but rather that drawing on interdisciplinary methods allows us to best answer questions about race, gender, and Black people's livelihoods. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm curious to know from you, Jalicia, about how you arrived at Black Studies and what actually led you to enter this field. 
Yeah, that was great, girl. I really appreciated you saying that. <laughs> Just wanted to pause to say that. So what motivated me to arrive to this field? Um, what resonated so deeply with me about what you just shared was um, was the importance of Black study and acknowledging full personhood and in studying Black life and Black people as subjects and not merely objects. Black humanity and freedom being so central to that as well as transnational interdisciplinarity being central to that study. I, I really appreciated that and I just want to echo um, everything that you shared. I had three entrances to Black Studies, but I think mm-hmm. I'll focus on two. A sort of where and when I enter into Black Studies began, I would say, in Brooklyn, growing up in college in Williamstown, Massachusetts, where Nika and I both attended. Dr. Denny and I both attended. Shout out to Williams <laughs> College. Ooh, ooh, class of 2013 and class of 2014. So I became interested in questions around race and gender as an HIV organizer in Brooklyn at age 15. And I joined a youth-centered HIV AIDS organization, which mobilized youth of color in HIV peer education and advocacy. And it did so by melding the performative arts and activism. And as we know, so much of art and activism is a huge part of Black life and also understanding the, the depth and, and complexity of um, the Black experience and the role of the African diaspora in making that. This entrance was important and it was performative because it was one of the first times that I really understood and saw and was exposed to sort of these racialized understandings of HIV and illness, right? It was, it was a little over a decade after Haitians were were viewed as a risk group in the transmission of HIV, right? The CDC classified the 4-H club were at risk of AIDS, right? Homosexuals, hemophiliacs, heroin addicts, and Haitians. And Haitians were the only <laughs> cultural group that was ever viewed as an at-risk category at the time for, for HIV and AIDS. And I think at the time I was young and came across these as a teenager um, coming of age at a time where I could clearly see questions of American exceptionalism, foreignness, um, immigration politics, and just kind of racism merging in these very vibrant ways. And I had, you know, I had questions. I wanted to get a language for understanding this. I wanted to also be able to contextualize it in my own lived experience as a Black woman, as a Black Caribbean woman coming of age in Brooklyn, but also as an HIV organizer at the time. So during this time, I also was exposed to sort of the racialized narratives of Black women as victims of a paralyzing plague. And it was during a time when AIDS was also the leading cause of death for Black women, ages 25 to 34. And it was disproportionately impacting Black communities in unprecedented ways. The popular framing of the epidemic was not that. And it was framed in early years as a disease that mainly affects white gay men. So the time that I was participating in this kind of organizing, mid to late 2000s, I entered college um, in 2010. And that's where I became, this was the second entrance and also what led me to Black Studies. And Black Studies was really a space where I gained the vocabulary to concretize my lived experiences. And it was Mm -hmm. also a space for me to kind of understand, to start an intellectual journey in ways that were put in conversation my observations about racism, health, in public discourse and state responses, but also in my own experiences of um, grassroots mobilization and coalition building. And so before I 
before I had the jargon to articulate what was really happening, these personal experiences were at the fore of that coming to an understanding of myself as a Black woman, as a Black person, as a Black organizer in the world. And so in the second entrance as a Black studies student and major, I was majoring Africana studies and women's gender and sexuality studies, it offered space to really think critically about my position as a member of the African diaspora. It was where I kind of learned the intellectual genealogies of Black studies and Black and women of color feminism and the transnational social movements. It was also a space for me to get training in ethnography, um, in oral histories, um, in archival research so that I could narrate my own experiences, but also look at the alternative ways that Black people have always found to to share their experiences to the world, to document them, and to form stories that are important for their survival. It was really a space where I learned to understand and also to construct my own archives where Black women's lived experiences and storytelling would be viewed as a valid forms of their um, knowledge production. And my final entrance that I won't go into much depth, but the third entrance was when I started um, my thesis work, which later became my um, dissertation research on HIV AIDS and black women in Jamaica. But this was where I put all of, all of that I learned as an HIV organizer in Brooklyn and my first entrance to black studies and all of what I learned as a student of a formal student of black studies and and, and during my second entrance in Africana studies, I put those, merged those experiences to really apply and to think and to document Black experience, Black culture and Black life, Black politics in the real life, foregrounding the experiences of um, Caribbean women. And so that's how I came to Black studies. Yeah, I think that that's a really natural fit with the field too, because I mean, Black studies was born out of scholar activism of the 60s and 70s, right? That's how we end up getting Black studies departments through student protests that are taking place in California, through student protests that are taking place at universities all throughout the country. And so there's always been this really intimate connection between scholarship about Black people and activism on behalf of Black people within the field of Black studies. And I think that your path to Black studies as a field really highlights how we see those things coming into play. So for me, I think that my entry into Black studies is in some ways illustrated by what you mentioned about the four age clubs. And that is because I come from a very white area in a somewhat rural town And when you said four H clubs, I wasn't thinking about HIV. I was thinking about farming clubs because there are four H clubs that go by that name that exist back home. And so that background for me is certainly a precursor to how I wound up taking Black Studies classes and whatnot when I got to college. Because there I was as a child of immigrants growing up in this very white, somewhat rural area and not really getting any information about Black people or Black literature or Black history in the classes that I was taking, right? Like, I remember, for example, my sister and I, we were sitting in our AP US history class, one of the few classes that we actually took together. I I can't tell you the exact year. This was my junior year of high school, maybe my sophomore year. So this would have been, I guess, around 2007 or somewhere around there. It's possible that Obama was already running for office by that point in time. Um, But I remember 
that the teacher for this course, she posed a question along the lines of, why do Black people always vote for Democrats when Republicans freed them from slavery? And then the teacher, as well as the whole class, looked at me and my sister as if, as teenagers, we're supposed to be able to have this answer, right? Like, we're being looked at as the Black students in class who should be teaching about Black history, even though presumably there's this woman who is supposed to be educating us and everyone else about it, right? So that's the type of place where I grew up in. And so naturally, when I was about to go off to college, I was really excited to be able to take Africana Studies courses. I was really excited to be able to be involved with the Black Student Union so I could finally find some people who looked like me who were also going to be in these courses, who were also going to be able to be part of a community together and everything like that. And so my entry into Black Studies was very much born out of me recognizing that that was lacking Mm -hmm. in my high school education up until that point. Um, And so it's something that I was looking forward to when I got to college. I think it was further compounded by the fact that the advisor I was paired with my very first year of college, the wonderful, fantastic Neil Roberts, was someone who was very much invested in Africana studies. And I was very fortunate in that regard to have my first year advisor be someone who would ultimately remain my advisor through all four years of college and who I would later continue to pester. I probably sent him an email within the past month asking him about some random (laughs) thing. I just lucked out in that way. As soon as I set foot on campus, I was immediately privy to an advisor and a mentor who was in Africana studies and who understood the intricacies of the field. Mm. This would later continue because the summer before my junior year, I lucked into being able to be Neil's research Mm. assistant. That was a series of fortunate events for me because originally someone else was supposed to do it, but then they weren't able to do it. And that's how I wound up being his research assistant. And that summer that I spent working for him showed me that graduate school was really something I was interested in. At that point in time, I was preparing to take um, the LSAT in order to apply to law school. I made a somewhat last minute decision to just scrap all of that. I mean, I I took the exam. I, I don't quite think I did very well on it, but nevertheless, I did take it, right? Like I was on the path towards considering going to law school and I abandoned that because I decided that what I wanted to do was focused on Black studies instead. At the point in time that I applied to graduate school, I didn't even consider applying to programs in political science, which I was majoring in. I didn't even consider applying to programs in history or anything of the sort. I did not want a straight discipline. I only applied to programs in Africana studies or African-American studies. Um, And my father, he's a professor. He's a historian by training, focusing on African and Caribbean history. And he told me over and over again, you need a discipline. You need a discipline. I think, in fact, he probably warned me that I wasn't going to be able to find a job getting a degree in Black studies as opposed to a traditional discipline. Look at me now, Pops. I'm just kidding. He's very supportive. He, he loves to brag. But that being said, these are some of the paths that led me to Black studies. Wanting to get that when I was entering college because I knew that it was something that was lacking. Um, And then just lucking into being paired with a mentor my very first day on campus um, who was able to show me the ropes and introduce me to how expansive of a field Africana studies could be. 
That is wonderful to hear, Dr. Denny. And I think one of the things that stand out to me is what you're, you're sharing is the community building and intergenerational knowledge sharing piece that is so integral, I think, to entrances into Black studies slash Africana studies, as well as to us being exposed to the kind of knowledge and possibilities that can occur as we're in it. And so you're reminding me, um, shout out to Professor Neil Roberts, whose Africana political, con- contemporary social and political theory class was wonderful in my first year. It's, it's where I learned the word diaspora. And Professor Shanti mm-hmm. Singer, who wonderful work, and Professor Shanti Singham, whose wonderful work in teaching around classism and Caribbean resistance, has always provided me with a model for how to think about history and transnationalism and Caribbeanness. Um, Professor Leslie Brown, may her soul rest in power. Oh, yes, indeed, who was a phenomenal support for me as I was there. And, and one of the last things she said to me before I graduated was, make sure that you construct your own archive of Black women. And she gave me my very first book to be a part of that um, archive. And, and so that was wonderful. And I'll always remember that. Joy James really made me think about Black radicalism and feminism and how they really intersect, as well as abolition politics, as well as Professor LaRonda Menegal Bryant, who was my Mellon advisor and who also was a person who introduced me in very intimate, dynamic, and practical ways to the practice of ethnography and Black feminism in theory and in practice. And so I agree with you. I think collectively, and I'm forgetting some names, but there are wonderful people in Africana studies um, and who have helped chart and create that sort of community, curate that community for people like mm-hmm. me and you to be able to to enter into it in this, and, you know, to think about how our work and our position and our entrances, and what, almost five to 10 years later. So um, that's really wonderful to hear. Yeah, I think that what you're saying about community is absolutely essential. And I think that we were lucky in that way, right? We had a really wonderful Africana studies program um, at Williams College. Being that it is a small school, it's the type of environment where you could stroll into a professor's office unannounced and just sit down and have a conversation with them, right? Mm-hmm. Like I I was taking one of Devin Benson's courses and I think it, I, I think I probably only took one class with her. And yet I was in her office constantly just making conversation and pestering her. And our paths would later cross again um, with her being my department chair while I was doing a postdoc um, for two years immediately after I finished my PhD. I wasn't a sociology major, but I was always in James Manigault O'Brien's office, right? Like I loved that we had the type of environment within Black studies as a field I wouldn't say that this is universal, but I would say that at our particular college where we were sharing this experience, the faculty really did a magnificent job of showing us that they were there for us as Black students and that they, as Black faculty, would do their best to show us the ropes with what the field looks like and what those possibilities might look like for us after we finish college, regardless of whether that was continuing in academia or pursuing different yes, paths. Yes, Dr. Denny, right on. And like one of, and, and absolutely, I think it's definitely a privilege having them there and having access to them there because as, you know, we're on it on the other side as professors now, um, I think one of the things I often think about is these questions around, you know, hiring, retention and recruitment and and who who is Black Studies and who's represented and who's not. Um, and so I think these mm-hmm. questions around visibility and invisibility around 
erasure and whose voice is um, is is made available and listened to, whether we think about at conferences or in syllabus, right? So in, a, in a syllabi or just in the room, so to speak, at the table. Um, it's something that I constantly think about when I think about this question of, you know, knowledge production and and um, who can produce um, knowledge production about Black life and, and Black politics and in the ways that we wonder, you know, was saw modeled to us at, at an important stage in our lives. So yeah, that's something, that community building mm-hmm. aspect, something that I really appreciate and the ways in which all of these people we just named kind of model the alternative ways of creating evidence of truth and new terrains of knowledge that made us believe that mm-hmm. we could also do do the very same. Right. And so with us being on the other side now, right, like we see this sort of torch passing from them to us. They're still in the game. Don't worry. They're still in the game. Very, um, very vibrantly and- so. Very vibrantly. <laughs> uh-huh. But now that we're out on the other side, I'm thinking as well about what type of torch we would like to pass to our own students who are taking Black Studies courses and where we would like to see Black Studies go in the future. I think the kind of future of Black Studies that I really want to see is kind of embodies much of the essence of the, this dialogue and exchange. Um, it's something that really merges theory and praxis. Um, in ways that are invested in ethical and political moments and experiences that are relevant to Black life. Not just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but knowledge and praxis being really in conversation with each other in really meaningful ways. I think we're at a very interesting moment where Black humanity protests and dignity reckons with the violent turmoil of what it means to live in amidst global anti-blackness, amidst um, prolonged heightened racialized violence and deep racial disparities and ethnic and class disparities and the coronavirus um, pandemic transmission and mortality rates. It's an interesting time because there was a recent executive order by Donald Trump to expand the ban, a ban on racial sensitivity programs, which challenges the core of work like you and I do teach and write on, right? Essentially trying to erase critical race theory, systemic racism, work on white privilege and social justice, arguably at a time where you need people who do work like this more than ever to guide our extremely hostile and uninformed conversations around equity and racial justice. So when I think about Black Mm -hmm. studies in our current moment, when I think about Black studies in the future and what it means, I think it is one that have to, um, as you mentioned, incorporate interdisciplinary um, interdisciplinarity in its perspectives, intersectionality, and transnationalism. And I think I would say it is one that really asks us also to reckon with what does it mean for Black studies to be in action? What does it mean for us to take some of the principles and tenets and values that we, that we really elevate in our work and in our daily practice of this to really connect across academic hierarchies to think about how we can advance mm-hmm. social transformation in ways, whether that be through our knowledge production, but also with our the capital and status that and our university resources. You know, I think it's for me thinking about Black Studies investments in questions around stigmatized embodiment and how to resist that, how to challenge that, means that we essentially have to be active about creating wider terrains of actions that explicitly challenge systemic racism, exclusionary institutional cultures, not just 
by the nature of, you know, of producing knowledge and in the syllabus we create, but also in really crafting those documents and taking, putting that in the classroom and then also thinking about ways we might apply it outside of the classroom. Um, I think a huge part mm -hmm. of what the future of Black studies that I want to see is one that can activate these visions of a more humane world. I agree 100% with everything you're saying about the work that we want to see Black studies continue to do as a field. Um, and I, I think you covered all of your bases there. Um, but I would also add that some of the things that I want to see Black studies do or where I want to see Black studies go in the future has to do with the ways that we situate Black studies within existing institutions. Like I would like to see the continued institutionalization of Black studies in two different ways. Um, the first way is through what I'm trying to do with an organization I co-founded, the Black Women's yes. Studies Association. Uh, and I co-founded this organization in 2018 with Dr. Jacinta Saffold. And we are really striving to bring together folks who are working on research that centers Black women, regardless of what field they're in. Um, and this is because we believe that we need multidisciplinary intellectual exchange across fields, right? There are plenty of people doing incredible work about Black women in sociology. There are plenty of people doing incredible work on Black women in the field of public health, but we're not necessarily talking to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so something that I would like to see from Black studies uh, and where I would like to see Black studies go in the future is for people to talk together more across mm -hmm. disciplines even among folks who are not necessarily trained in Black studies. Um, I add this with a slight caveat, though, which is connected to my second point, because not everything having to do with Black people is Black mm -hmm. studies, right? And so I think that there are people who are working on things related to Black studies in any number of fields, but are not necessarily in conversation with Black mm -hmm. studies. So that's point one that I would like to see. But point two also is perhaps slightly contradictory in that sense, in that I don't want to see anything and everything become Black mm -hmm. studies. I say that because there have been a lot of pushes since the summer of 2020 mm -hmm. to reckon with the United States's checkered racial past. I think that following the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd at the hands of the police that many people have suddenly become more attentive to race and race relations, which is wonderful. I don't object to that in any way, shape, or form. But what I also suspect and what I am also wary of uh, is that this might lead to attempts to interrogate race without actually including Black people or folks who are already doing work on Black studies. I am slightly wary that this is going to result in attempts to focus on anti-racism without having a connection to actual Black people. And so I think that the remedy to that, um, or the, a sort of antidote, is for people to continue to invest in Black studies. I think that the antidote is to continue to institutionalize Black studies um, by universities funding their Black studies mm -hmm. programs. Uh, by creating the conditions that would allow these programs to thrive, right? You can't give a program pennies and then critique it when they are not as successful as you might want them to be. I hope that schools are able to put their money where their mouth is and actually hire people who can do Black yeah. studies, uh, preferably people who are trained in Black studies 
and know what it means to incorporate this interdisciplinarity and intersectionality uh, and transnationalism that I mentioned earlier. So I think that that's where I would like to see Black studies go in the future. I would like to see a greater investment in institutionalizing Black studies, in hiring Black studies scholars, uh, in allowing students to major in Black studies rather than only minor. Um, These are things that I would love to see from the field. I love that. I love all of that. And especially what stands out to me um, that I'm hearing so deeply is these questions around, not even questions, these calls for equity and institutional accountability and mechanisms that allow us equity and institutional accountability and these mechanisms that allow us to really prioritize and invest in Black studies for the long term. That completely resonates with me. Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that it's something I'm just concerned could be a possibility. I haven't necessarily seen it happen just yet. Um, But I know of different, um, even even just thinking about different job ads that have circulated um, over the past couple months, around the time of the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, I saw a whole lot of things on social media let's say magazines, for example, looking for pitches specifically from Black writers, right? Like not even only about Black issues. I saw things about these different tech giants specifically looking to diversify and things like that. Um, and so this is, this is an issue that I think spans not simply academia. I don't think it's limited to higher education, right? But I want this energy to continue and I want this energy to continue in service of Black studies. I think that those are some of the things that I'm hoping for to avoid this sort of watering down of the issues that Black people mm-hmm. face. And also understanding that while the moment that, that we were witnessing in this particular moment, the cause to do this work, <laughs> the cause to do this work and the actual substantive, tangible actions to do it should also exceed this moment. <laughs> Um, and it shouldn't just mm-hmm. be a temporal investment. It should be something that is prolonged, that is multi-pronged, um, and that is um, mm-hmm. dynamic and sustainable. So absolutely. Right. We, we don't just want these institutions to do it. We want them to do it well and to do it permanently. Um, I, think that some, I think that another phenomenon that has taken hold within academia over the past couple of years uh, is for there to be uh, visiting professorships or postdoctoral fellowships that are being offered um, within Black studies rather than permanent professorships mm-hmm. um, that would allow schools to continue to build their programs in the ways that they need to be built. Um, I think that we also see this with there being some programs. I'm thinking of one institution in particular um, in California that will not mm-hmm. be named that has not created an Africana studies program despite people calling for one. Um, instead, they have offered a postdoctoral fellowship for the past mm-hmm. several years. Uh, and in the wake of everything that has happened recently, rather than creating a black studies program, they have instead launched some sort of cluster with hires to be made surrounding race more broadly construed. That what I would like to see is this sort of preservation of black studies where it does not get conflated with anything and everything having to do with race or racism, I would like to see an actual investment that can be followed through 
permanently. Absolutely. Yep. Thank you for that, Dr. Denny. I think that that is all the time that we have for today. So thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Jolly. Uh, And stay tuned, everyone, for the next episode of the Surviving Society Spotlight Season. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Spotlight Series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch.